again, thank you all for coming. Uh, as the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in certain parts of Idaho continues to rise, our localized approach is responding, in responding has taken effect. I support the mayors and local public health officials across the state who are making tough decisions to protect citizens and preserve healthcare capacity. We want our students back in school at the end of the summer. We want our economy to rebound as quickly as possible. Our personal actions are the single most important thing we can do to make this happen. Over the past two weeks, Idaho did not meet the criteria to advance past our final stage of the Idaho Rebounds Plan. We will remain in stage four for at least another two weeks. I'll let Dr. Chris Hahn, our state epidemiologist, explain the details in a bit. The last several months have presented extraordinary challenges for Idaho students, educators, staff, and parents. I want to express my sincere thanks to our educators, school staff for continuing to serve our children. I want to thank the parents for doing everything they can to support their children during these challenging times. These extraordinary circumstances have further reinforced the important role our schools play in supporting families, communities, and our larger economy. The Idaho Constitution clearly outlines our duty to establish a thorough and uniform system of schools in Idaho. The pandemic has tested our ability to meet this obligation to Idaho's youngest citizens. The abrupt closure of school in the spring disrupted our ability to prepare our children. In the fall, I expect Idaho schools to safely reopen for in-person education. Despite the incredible advances in digital learning, you can never replace the value and impact of in-person interaction with a professional, ded dedicated teacher. The expectation is that schools will not be closed for extended periods of time. Before COVID-19, too many Idaho students faced a significant achievement gap and ongoing risk to their mental and social well-being. The pandemic has exacerbated this gap imposes a potential ongoing disruption to our state's momentum in many different fronts, from early literacy to college and career readiness and students' overall well-being. It's imperative that students return to their classrooms and interact directly with their teachers and classmates at the end of the summer. But we also must make sure this can happen safely. The decisions about school operations will be made locally, but today we're making a statewide framework available to school districts to guide them in their decisions. Local public health districts and school administrators will remain in close contact as we move forward in order to ensure a safe learning environment. At the state level, we'll be closely watching why school districts and charter schools develop and refine their own fall reopening plans in the coming weeks. We do know that the 2021 school year will not look like the same as in previous years, look the same as previous years. Our schools must be flexible in delivering different kinds of learning. The Idaho back to school framework 
is not overly prescriptive, but it does set expectations for the fall, provide support for local governance and decision-making, and offer guidance and best practices on key operational components of reopening. This is a balancing act for schools, meeting the needs of our students while navigating public health challenges. I want to thank the K-12 stakeholders who assisted in the effort. Debbie Critchfield for chairing the committee, the staff of the State Board of Education, Superintendent Ibarra, and her staff at the State Department of Education for working to put this framework together. We also have a committee chaired by State Board Edu of Education member Kurt Liebeck working on our efforts to bridge the digital divide and deliver greater blended learning opportunities. We've already deployed resources toward the reopening of schools in the fall. We've approved $30 million to help address the digital divide and deliver blended learning. The State Board of Education has dedicated 10% of the elementary and secondary schools emergency relief fund toward reopening in the fall. The board and the State Department of Education are working on, average daily, on the average daily attended issue as we expect more blended learning delivery in many schools this fall. This framework is an initial step and there's going to be a lot of work, especially at the district and charter level to reopen schools in the fall for in-person instruction. I wanna reiterate that we cannot succeed in rebounding our economy and safely send children back to school if we do not individually and collectively take steps now to slow the spread of coronavirus in our communities. You know the drill. Wear a protective face covering in public. Keep physical distancing six feet from others. Wash your hands and stay home if you're sick. With that, I'll let Dr. Hahn review our metrics and the State Board of Education uh, Chair, Debbie Critchfield, will make a few remarks. Then Superintendent Abar will speak and then we'll take your questions. Debbie? Or Chris, excuse me. Thank you. Um, so I know we have a technical problem this morning, so we will only be able to view this screen. Apologize if that's hard for people to view, um, but this is all gonna be posted to our website as well. Um, first of all, I want to remind everybody that we do have additional information available on the website, and that is really important information that we look at as well. And most recently, we've added the number of persons in the hospital on every day, and um, I hope that is helpful to you all. We've been very happy to now be able to um, have good, robust data on the number of people in the hospital and the number of people in intensive care which is a very important indicator that was not available when we created the metrics, uh, but we've talked about whether going forward we might adjust our metrics and start including this information formally into our, our metrics process. Uh, but rest assured, we look at that. We are very aware of the rising rates. And I say that partly because as you'll see from the data, um, the data is not completely capturing, I think, some of the increases that we are seeing. 
So first of all, as far as our, what we're calling our epidemiologic criteria, if you look at the last two weeks, we have seen a rise in cases. This graph doesn't look nearly as dramatic as what you'll see on the website because the rise occurred prior to the time frame shown in here. Uh, but you can see that uh, we are continuing to see uh, more cases. Uh, secondly, on the bottom half of the graph, you can see that our percent positivity um, has been rising as well. Um, we are doing more testing. Um, you know, the good news is that we are very glad to see that our testing rose from about 10,000 tests per week done in early January to over 18,000 tests reported uh, for the week prior to last and over 15,000 reported for last week. So we are seeing an improvement in testing. That said, our percent positivity is over, well over 5%. We're now at about 10.8%. Um, so we failed this metric, if you will. Um, things are not uh, going in the right direction as far as our percent positivity. Next, if you look at our what we call syndromic criteria, so these are people coming into emergency department with a syndrome or a bunch of symptoms that could be COVID. And we look at this data because we want to see, number one, the burden on the hospitals in their emergency departments, but also an indication of who, not just how many cases there are, many cases are mildly ill. These are people who are sick enough that they're showing up in the emergency department. And you can see on the top graph there that we have seen an increase in the number of people coming in to the emergency department. Um, it met our metric of fewer than 20 on average during that two-week period, but you can see it's increasing and we, uh, we realize that that is not a, a good indicator. Uh, for uh, it is not a good indicator, meaning it is not showing us um, fully uh, the, the trend and the way things are going, uh, which is generally up. Um, the lower graph also shows uh, people being seen in the emergency department with these symptoms, how many are getting to the mid of the hospital. And thankfully, although we have seen a rise in hospitalizations, it has not been um, as dramatic as what we saw with the first wave. I think you know that that's news nationally as well as in Idaho, a more of a disconnect between the number of cases going up and the burden on the hospitals. What's not shown in our metrics, and I urge you to go check our website, is you can see though we are seeing a rise in hospitalization almost entirely here in the Treasure Valley. If you look around the rest of the state, they are not yet seeing increases. Uh, but here in uh, Treasure Valley, they have seen some increase in cases. And um, the uh, CEOs of the hospital spoke to this uh, just a few evenings ago at the uh, district health department meeting, and some of you may have heard them speak. Lastly, we have the healthcare, um, the other, uh, what, we call, what we're calling healthcare criteria. Obviously, these all kind of fall into that uh, bucket to a certain extent. But this is intensive care unit beds and ventilator beds that are available. And you can see that we still have um, over 100 um, ICU beds available and over 400 ventilators available. Again, uh, partly because the people that are getting tested and getting diagnosed are not in general as severely ill as what we saw in the first wave. Um, we also have a good, a better supply, I should say, of PPE. We're hoping that doesn't change as we start to see more cases, but for right now we have a uh, good solid 10-day supply of PPE available uh, to the hospitals uh, for, the, for the present time. And then lastly, um, we are seeing healthcare workers, we talked about this two weeks ago, we are seeing more healthcare workers uh, that got infected over the last several weeks, uh, but that trend has started to come down. As we talked about last time, we believe that, um, and this is from the investigators that are interviewing these patients, this is also what the hospitals are telling this because they interview their employees as well who are diagnosed. 
that this is mostly community acquisition. These are uh, generally younger adults who have been out in the community, just like the rest of us have been going out and about, and uh, either through their household, family members, or through other exposures are getting infected. Nonetheless, what this speaks to is if we have, even if they're getting infected in the community, and it isn't, it isn't implying that they're getting sick at work, it still means that they're out of work. And so it is really stressing the hospitals to see uh, their workers uh, get ill, and we're happy to see some improvement in that measure over the last uh, two weeks. So that's all, all I have. First of all, I want to express my appreciation in the confidence and support that the governor has given me and, and uh, his reopening committee. Um, as he stated at the outset, his priority is to get schools back into session and, and help support local boards' ability to do that. And to that end, we have had a number of uh, representatives from all aspects of education that have rapidly been working over the last six weeks to develop some guidelines and a framework whereby we can support local governance as they make these decisions. I do want to point out a, a, what I think is an important and critical distinction between what happened in the spring and what has been happening over the last few weeks. As you know, when we entered into the soft closure phase, we were at a heightened mitigation uh, time. Uh, we were trying to slow the spread, and um, clearly I'm not the scientist here, but we know that those efforts were successful. And as schools began to inquire on whether or not they could return, if possible, for the remainder of the school year, our board developed a framework that was a checklist of things that you needed to do in order to get back into school. What uh, we are putting out today and um, what the governor has um, detailed is completely opposite of that. This document is intended to support the decisions of being in school. That is the expectation and, and the priority. We want districts to be able to navigate the, the complex and challenging decisions that need to be made relative to operations, um, contact um, contracts, student learning outcomes, and um, other aspects of, of being in school day to day. And, and so when, when we compare where we've been and where we are, the hope and the expectation is that we can return to school. And frankly, that mirrors um, the expectations and the desires of families, of students, of educators, and administrators. And so as we approached this work, um, we considered and asked the group, and um, we added to the full committee by breaking into smaller subcommittees, we asked them to develop a list of, of items that were not only just challenging, but what are things that, that you're thinking about? Um, what are things that are keeping you awake at night when you think about bringing uh, students back into the classroom and um, bringing staff and, and faculty back as well? And so that is how we approach that. Nothing in the guidelines or in the framework is mandatory. You will not see anything that is a thou shalt. It is intended to support it is intended to guide as local boards sit down, what is their process, who are those important voices and advisory uh, folks that they need to engage as they make their decisions, who do they look to, and, and how do they solve these things. What I think makes Idaho's plan stand apart from many of the other state plans that we've seen, um, even the fact that it is uh, visibly smaller, it's not quite as thick as other plans, we have spent some time, um, fellow board member Dr. Linda Clark um, was the chair of a committee that looked at student outcomes. 
we spend a lot of time talking about the physical needs of schools and, and how we go about getting kids to and from lunch or recess or how desks are arranged. We do not want to lose sight of the fact that our, our, our primary focus is ultimately and inevitably about making sure that our students are academically prepared. We're concerned, as the governor pointed out, um, about the gaps, the time away, um, the inequities of delivery, and certainly um, the, the need to, to beef up the technology and some of these blended learning models. And, and so as, as districts sit down to um, make these decisions on what their school day looks like, we did not want to leave that, that part out. That is the role and the responsibility, not only of local trustees, but um, of a state board of education and frankly, um, everyone. Another important partner in all of this that, that we spent a, 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 a considerable amount of time discussing was that role of families. We know that schools can and should do many things, but they cannot do everything. And you will see in the guidance a recommendation uh, for parents to take temperatures of their children and 100.1 uh, stays home for a few days and, until that's resolved. If we want schools, and we do, we want them um, to be able to stay in session, we want them to be able to serve students in all the ways that we know are, are critically important to their overall development. We absolutely have to ask families to be a part of this, that, that they are also aware and that it may be a couple days out of school for your student. Schools will work with you, they will do all that they can, but ultimately that, that serves the greater good. That is one thing. Um, there are things that you will not see in there, and that is any type of mandate on wearing of masks. That is a, a local governing decision for local boards and um, as they work with their local public health to make those decisions. And so you will, you will as you look through that, um, you will be able to see what's there and what's not. It's not a document that's there to give legal advice. And it certainly is not an exhaustive blueprint of every eventuality that may occur. We don't know what things will be like, certainly even a, a few weeks or a few months from now. But we do believe that this is a solid foundation whereby local boards and superintendents getting together with their community expectations can outline their own plans, communicate them with their patrons, family, students on how they expect to one, educate their child and two, protect their safety. And, and I probably should list them both as ones because they are, are both priorities and they are certainly not mutually exclusive. And so as um, we get this document out, um, we anticipate that, that boards who have been um, developing their own plans and, and working through some of these issues, uh, we have encouraged them to do that in the process. This was not a wait until the state board tells you how to do this. We have asked and, and again encouraged them uh, to work through their plans and then as this guidance and, and framework comes out, that it gives them an opportunity to sit down and to discuss, have we thought through all of these things? Are these considerations um, that are reflected in our own plan? Um, we know that this is a challenging time. It's an anxious time. Uh, there's a lot of emotions um, on every, um, at every angle and at every turn, but uh, we are confident in the resiliency of our educators here in Idaho, in their dedication, in all of our commitment to serving students and we're very optimistic and, and hopeful uh, for the coming school year. So thank you.
Thank you, Governor Little, for your leadership <clears throat> to our great state during this challenging time. Like many Idahoans, I share a longing for our students uh, to go back to school safely. Uh, it's not a matter of if, uh, but a matter of how schools reopen. Because schools do more than just address academics. They also address physical, mental, and nutritional services for kids, and much, much more. But as a mom and an educator and the wife of a first responder, the health and safety of our students, staff, and the community is our top priority until this pandemic is behind us. That's why my staff worked closely with the Office of Emergency Management to deliver masks and over 2,000 gallons of free donated hand sanitizer around the state. And there will be more to come. Quick thank you to General Ritchie and his staff at the Office of Emergency Management for helping us organize that. And we know more now than we did when schools first closed, as you heard earlier. And I must say, in all of my training, to be a superintendent, this certainly was not found in any manual or any class that I took. That's why the, gu the guidance that the governor announced today for reopening our schools is so important in tackling these extraordinary issues we are facing. We know that every community is unique and that there is no one-size-fits-all approach. Because when schools open this fall, communities will be in different stages of the pandemic. That's why local control here is so important. It's not going to look the same in Prairie as it does in Coeur d'Alene or Nampa. So I fully support the direction that you just heard my fellow board members state about local communities and school districts deciding how and when to reopen. And what the governor has announced today is informed guidance recommendations and best practices so that local school boards and their communities can make the best decisions for their students, educators, and communities. The folks who worked on this guidance, such as teachers, administrators, and folks from public health, deserve a huge heartfelt thank you as they spent countless hours on Zoom meetings, studying the health and safety issues and working together to bring forward guidelines that help facilitate the reopening of Idaho schools. Already, school districts and charter schools are working with their parents and their patrons and are considering a variety of options for reopening that include social distancing through split or rotating schedules, phased in openings, online and blended learning, and traditional instruction as well. The key to success this fall will be that parents and students have choices and options for their learning based on what's best for their situation and in their communities. Because every single community in Idaho will look different. That's why I've been a huge proponent of making sure we have choices for parents. And that includes remote or online learning options for those who may not feel comfortable sending their student back this fall. This remote or online learning path and push that my staff and I have been discussing since the pandemic started will be the key to the unprecedented times for education in Idaho that we're facing, especially for those kids who had learning gaps before this all started, like our students of poverty and our English language learners and other at-risk populations. 
That is why another reason I'm so grateful to the governor uh, for the 30 million that he's given education to help with this effort. And it'll include things like expanding connectivity and uh, purchasing devices. And I have worked with my fellow state board members uh, to purchase an online system for our students to receive their curriculum and also to serve as a systematic way to communicate with our students and our parents. As some of those learning gaps that I mentioned earlier could be felt for years to come without this remote online learning opportunity for almost vulnerable students. Now, I have to say that this approach we all know will not replace the teacher or the human interaction that you heard the governor mention earlier for our students. They need that. Teachers will still need to facilitate the remote online learning and all the options and opportunities that still need to be available to our students. But in closing, rest assured, the health and safety of our students and community and staff are a top priority. And I wanna assure you all that, this, that as I, as the superintendent of public instruction and my team are working day and night to help provide resources for schools and students and parents and guidance to help support learning this fall. I know that we are all committed to doing the best for Idaho students so that they can continue to learn and achieve safely and responsibly. Thank you. Who's first? Marissa, are you going to ask all the questions? I've got a question from Melissa Davlin. Um, Governor, hospitals in the Treasure Valley are saying that they have started rationing tests again. Um, and she's hearing from people around the state that they're having to wait several days for testing and for results. Uh, what specifically is being done at the state level to increase capacity to meet the surge in testing demand as we see more cases? Well, and I'll, I'll let uh, Dr. Hahn finish up on it, but uh, our, our statewide average uh, goes up and down uh, depending upon uh, what the demand is. It wasn't very long ago where uh, some of the providers that were doing testing were shutting down. Uh, none of us desired, none of us thought this was gonna happen, this in incredible surge we've got in numbers that kept us uh, from advancing as we have right now. Uh, the testing task force is meeting today, I think, and, and I'll let Dr. Hahn talk about it. The, the, you know, this is a dynamic process, this whole testing. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's new testing coming out. Uh, there's uh, different sources of testing. There's, uh, there's changes in the inventory, uh, whether it be the reagents or whether it be the swabs. All of these play into that. Uh, but, you know, the big surge that we had in numbers and awareness of people that want to go test it has come way up, and I'll let, I'll let Chris talk about it. Yeah, just to add on to what the governor said, um, the task force is meeting today, and one thing we'll be talking about is specific te uh, steps we can take. As I mentioned, we have dramatically increased testing, so if you look on our website, you can see that. So. I don't want there to be impression that nothing's been done or there's been no improvement. The reason there's been suddenly this slowing down is nationwide. You may know a lot of our tests are actually done by out-of-state labs, LabCorp, Quest, you know, those sort of, uh, and they are getting hit from all sides because this increase, as you know, is not just Idaho, it's all states. So everybody's seeing a slowdown. We're going to talk about it today. A few ideas that have been 
that we need to discuss are pooled, what's called pooled testing, where you can run more samples at the same time. There's some downsides to that. Uh, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk about some of these ideas and see if the task force wants to recommend any other specific steps to increase testing services further. Governor Little, uh, we have uh, several questions from CBS 2's News Director, Ryan Haas. Uh, Governor Little, what message do you have uh, to Idahoans who aren't wearing masks? Wear your mask. Next question. Uh, what uh, message do you have to the families of uh, family members who have lost uh, family members? Who have well, I mean, that's, uh, you know, our, our one's too many. Our fatality rate is something that we're very concerned about. Uh, we do know from the uh, statistics that we've got that it's mainly in the at-risk uh, population, that the, the demographics of the people that have, and, have passed away is, is in that older, more susceptible population. But I want to urge everyone that all these practices that we're talking about are there to keep the general population levels down so it doesn't get into either a long-term care facility, into a facility where there's older people and expose uh, those other people. But that's why uh, distancing, masks, all those are essential. Uh, but we, we know who the at-risk population is. But occasionally, uh, and, and we see this in other states, and it's kind of where we are, uh, that, that that age, the people that are more dramatically affected, and I know a few of them. I know some of these very robust, healthy people that are still suffering the ravages of reduced lung capacity, all kinds of complications. So we need your help collectively at getting that message out that some of these people that think they're bulletproof uh, may have a rude awakening at some point in time. Uh, are you uh, working on any additional financial relief plans for struggling businesses uh, and families? Uh, there's, well, there's actually, we've got a lot of programs that are out there that are still available, uh, whether it be uh, individual entrepreneurs or businesses. And then one of the things that the uh, CFAC committee, the Coronavirus Advisory C Group Committee, uh, <laughs> I, I knew it was C something uh, to make some of the funds that are available to local government make them available to some of those businesses that are more impacted. Uh, uh, what about churches? Uh, do you have any uh, look forward for churches? What well, they should be doing? Uh, well, some of the faith-based groups uh, uh, avail themselves to the PPP program, which is an SBA program that the state has no control over. Uh, so they're, uh, those nonprofits were in those, those groups. And there's some of that PPP money is still available. So besides all the things you just mentioned, uh, Governor, what's it going to take to get Idaho back on track? Very good. <laughs> These questions are from CBS2's Scott Logan. Uh, Scott is asking, with the surge of COVID uh, cases in Idaho, do you expect a spike in layoffs and furloughs? It, it, it's really, it really depends. Uh, our unemployment numbers got a little better. I, I will remind everybody that uh, uh, out of all 50 states, uh, at the last statistical analysis by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are only three states that were better than Idaho uh, as far as their unemployment rate. And we, we had our employment rate go up. 
But all these programs we're putting in place, grants to small businesses, what we're doing from a rules standpoint, all these, all these things we're putting in place are to, to help those businesses. Uh, this COVID virus is uh, very discriminatory. If you're in the hospitality industry, you've been incredibly impacted. Uh, some of the other businesses in Idaho are, are frankly having a great year because some of the services they provide are services that people that are impacted by COVID virus want more than they had before. Uh, so we're trying to address those people that are being hurt. There's some other ones and our tax data reflects that uh, that are doing quite well. And he's asking also, uh, do you believe the Department of Labor is in a better position now with oh. uh, those things that you've been doing to help oh. Idaho? And by logarithmically. We are, uh, next week we expect to have the entire backlog uh, caught up uh, because of a lot of the things we put in place at the Department of Labor. And again, uh, those delays were too late in coming for a lot of the people, but that money now is going out through the economy. But in, in some of these instances where, for instance, bars that were open are now closed, we've got to have those programs in place to help those people along as they, as, as they face their challenges. And then we've got, uh, you know, some of the connectivity between uh, people that are now looking for, you know, maybe their, maybe their employer didn't make it for whatever reason, uh, the most common reason is the impacts of the COVID virus, but there are other businesses that are growing out there. We need to make the connection between those people so they can go to work. Scott's last question is, um, many jobless Idahoans have told us their difficulty getting help with uh, unemployment claims has made uh, them lose confidence in the state government. What would you say to them? I, I, I understand that. Uh, we were not, unique in Idaho. And of course, as we found out, as we worked through the unemployment issue, a lot of the, a lot of what slowed things down, a lot of the friction on the system was organized by mobs, by professional cyber criminals that were trying to get into our system and f filing fraudulent claims. We believe in Idaho that our, our work on stopping fraudulent claims was, was pretty successful, but that slowed that down. But there were only a few states really had robust systems in place to sort out those fraud claims. We will implement that going forward. Uh, hi, Jessica Taylor, Idaho News 6. My question is, who has the authority to shut down schools and how big of a role will the local health districts play in that decision? Well, if I had the cover uh, page of the uh, Idaho back to school plan, it specifically talks about kind of a ladder of who has authority. And, and for the most part, uh, the, the, the shutting down of schools uh, should be done with the school board in conjunction with the health district. The health district has that authority, as does the director of the Department of Health and Welfare. Did I miss anything, Debbie or Sherry? Okay. Clark. Moderate to describe the spread of the virus here. So, 
Are you in fact encouraging, would you encourage Boise schools to open if yes. Well, it's not. You, you, can, you can write a hypothetical that I can say, but given what we know, uh, look, probably the best example in the state was Blaine County at the onset. What happened in Blaine County? Uh, you know, that was, that was one district. There was absolutely no question. The health districts, the elected officials, the school boards, us, we all agreed on it. And, and of course, Blaine County has had a little bit of a spike uh, later, but you know things change over time. I, 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 I will tell you that by if if we all do the right things and and uh, modify behavior, that both those school districts uh, should open. Now they might have different practices, but I would add on to what you heard from uh, uh, both uh, the superintendent and the chairman of the board. Uh, even buildings are different. You can have the same school district where one building, uh, whether it's e exits, entrances, uh, class size, uh, common areas, uh, and that's why we're trying to get this out to work with the school districts, uh, because even even school districts or uh, school buildings are different. And as we know, in these larger school districts, you might have an area where you have almost runaway community spread, and you might have another area in in some of these school districts where they have none. So it's got to be addressed at a at a literally a school by school basis. But yeah, here in Boise, you know, twenty percent of our public school students roughly attend these two school districts. Is, is it safe to go back now and would it be safe for older staff members for particularly even in some of these other areas, if you have immune-compromised teachers, there's language that addresses that. Uh, we'll, ad we'll address that on a, it, it's not conducive anywhere, but particularly in a state as diverse as we are in Idaho, to put a one-size-fits-all. This document uh, offers the flexibility, offers the guidance, offers the best practices, and now we've got time between now and when kids go back to work uh, for the for the department, for the board, uh, for the local uh, school district to all work together to come up with a solution. But I don't want the message to be we're not going back to school. Yes. So for the schools that are saying students should socially distance, there's still the possibility, you know, that families have siblings that are in different classes. So what recommendations are there for those types of scenarios where, say, one sibling's classroom has a case, maybe the teacher or another student, should siblings be socially distancing at home, or how can we alleviate that problem? Well, as a, again, uh, I'm not exactly sure I understand the question, uh, but I'll give it a shot, even though I didn't understand it. Uh, uh, you know, every, every family, every school district, every school has to address those particular circumstances. Uh, you know, I can paint a scenario to where uh, a a very health compromised uh, grandparent or grandparents is taking care of a eight-year-old. Uh, th that's their, and and that's a different circumstance than what is the is the you know is the broader area. And we need to address each one of those uh, individual circumstances on an individual basis. Uh, you know, we didn't ask for this COVID virus. Uh, we were, we were given a a, a, a set of circumstances that's changing all the time, and this plan has to be adaptive to that for districts, for regions, for schools, and for individual students and individual families. 
Hi, Governor Little. Wanted to ask specifically about mask mandates. When it comes to if students are going to wear masks, I, you know, I heard earlier that you know the framework doesn't include that any mask mandate. That's really going to be up to the local jurisdiction. So for those cities that have enacted those mask mandates, are all students going to have to wear them? Who's going to make that decision? What is that going to look like? Again, it'll be on a school by school basis. I think almost every mask mandate has a five year. Chris, is a five-year, uh, all the mask mandates say you're exempt if you're under five, I think, or six, so, something like that. Uh, but, you know, the, the uh, you know, I, as I did at the onset of, of my talking points, uh, I am going to, uh, in, unless I have a very, very, very compelling reason, default uh, to the decision by the local health district or the mayor about what they do, uh, if you've got, I'll give you an example, if you've got two communities, one of them where you've got runaway community spread, and it's a very, it's, the mandate is mask everywhere, anywhere outside, versus another area where they're, they're being cautious about some event that's happening, and, and they may say it's only in retail establishments, not on the, I am not going to second guess them, and, and part of the reason I'm not going to second guess them is because uh, we're learning more and more about the efficacy of these things every day. And then I also wanted to ask a question from our sports director, Jay Tust. What, what are sports going to look like in the fall? Is it going to be safe to start those well, up? Well, this document uh, uh, defaults for high school sports to the High School Athletic Association, who are the, you know, they're the experts in it. Obviously, they'll be working with their superintendents. Uh, you know, each region has a, a, an advisor group, but that uh, that document is silent about it other than refer Debbie's nodding her approval. I'm glad I read it. Hey, Keith, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. As the state decided to reopen hair salons, that was decided by public health officials. As it decided to reopen restaurants, that was decided by public health officials. Why are schools being left to school boards and not public health officials? Uh, well, the state now there was a and and I'll, I'll actually let debbie come up here from in a minute but the state didn't close any of the schools in essence they put in a soft closing after all the schools are closed is that is that fair and and so uh, uh we didn't you know obviously blaine county's a big exception because of the of the the fact that we didn't have any this red line that red line uh, was a lot lower uh, when we had the problem in Blaine County, and we were out of healthcare capacity there. The hospital was closed. The closest uh, affiliated hospital was running out of capacity, uh, and that was it. All the rest of the school districts, it was a decision by the local school boards. Even I will add, they didn't have the authority, but we didn't... Uh, uh, say anything about it. They were the ones that closed down at that point in time. So when we put in uh, with, the, with the advice and consent, uh, the good counsel of my coronavirus working group, when we put in uh, the emergency orders and the things we did, literally schools weren't even on the table at that point in time.
Um, much of the discussion today has been about uh, K through 12 schooling, and this might be a question for the superintendent or President Critchfield. Um, how does the guidance released today apply to colleges and universities, and what special considerations are being taken for those institutions? Well, I will I will let uh, uh, Debbie come up and comment on it, but uh, uh, you know the universities uh, real early. Uh, uh, I know that uh, President Trump here uh, real early. Uh, said, you know, we're going to experiment with uh, uh, more online activity. They, they've got a whole different demographic. Uh, you know, there's a lot of those students there, uh, whether it be my community colleges or our universities, uh, to where uh, there are all kinds of opportunities. Uh, and, and we're going to default uh, to the advice and counsel uh, that those presidents uh, the state board and the re the regions do uh, for those institutions, and I'll let Debbie talk further. The governor covered it well. Um, as he stated, we have presidents in place, and they have been um, more than active. They have been proactive uh, looking at the fall several months ago. In fact, our universities were among the very first in the state to uh, offer and uh, put forward mitigation efforts uh, before spring break. And so we have, as a board, uh, we have been tracking those plans. That's one of the um, requests that we have had as a board as, as they make decisions and, and plans and how are things gonna look, that those are, it's, it's a, an evolving and developing uh, plan, uh, but we have um, been engaged in that. And so as far, this is a long way around the question. Uh, but as far as um, the answer on the, this is a K-12 guidance document. And Governor, since I'm here, if I could just add one more thing to the question over here um, on our hair salons versus our, our public schools. Um, our public schools have elected trustees. And um, that is a power that's invested in them. And it gives them the stewardship to make the decisions policy, they're, they're stewards over um, the financial decisions um, versus a, a group that would provide oversight for licensing. And, and so I think um, that distinction is very critical when we talk about overall decision making on who does what. Clearly boards want to have advice and be informed um, and, and work with partners to make the best decisions, but because of the nature of their positions, that elected nature, to me that elevates it and, and sets it uh, apart from other um, entities. A question for the governor. Um, in the I know back to school framework, it talks about online learning. That's a pretty um, significant component. And Superintendent Ibera just said that's a key component: remote online learning. Um, given Idaho's you know infrastructure with the internet, especially in rural areas, that might be lacking. And the you know, families out there who can't afford electronic devices for their kids or families who decide they want to do remote online learning for their family's safety. Are you confident Idaho ha um, can meet its constitutional mandate to teach children if a lot of students end up going the online learning route? Well, uh, Keith, uh, our constitutional obligation, uh, it, it, you're dead right about it, but you know, we've got school districts, some of our poorer school districts, uh, that were already one-to-one -one and had a robust system in place. Uh, because we are, for the most part, a local control area. We've made revenue, we've made funds available to them for 15 years for, uh, uh, for technology for devices. This COVID 
issue has accelerated the need for that. One of the things that, uh, uh, one of the sources of revenue we have is CARES dollar. The problem is CARES dollars, they gotta be spent by the end of this year. Uh, that's one of the reasons we put $50 million into that to try and get broadband capacity out into some of these areas. And the, my advisory group uh, has a specific education person on there to make sure that we've got that connectivity. Some of the districts not only are, are giving their kids devices, but they're also giving them hotspots uh, uh, so that they can access it. It is not perfect. If we would have seen this coming uh, three or four years ago, we could have done a lot more, but uh, nobody anticipated this. We are, we are putting money into it from the, uh, from the federal and the state level. Uh, we're putting resources into um, to broadband, but just as ordinary citizens, uh, some of them that live in certain areas where they just don't have any connectivity, uh, it's a problem. We're trying to address it, it's a big priority for us, but that goes back to the fundamental uh, premise is I want those kids in school. Uh, just by and large, uh, these rural areas where they've got the least amount of community spread are some of the areas where we want those kids back in school. But the first day they come into school, uh, we're advising the trustees, the administrators, the teachers to work on your, on your programs for remote delivery whether that's a device or whether that's picking up a packet of uh, uh, paper at the school at some time if you're there. Those are all provisions uh, that, that we wanna have in place. Uh, it is not perfect. Uh, given a year's notice, we probably would have been able to address more of it, but there's a lot more devices out there than there are today in a lot of communities. But I will readily admit, uh, life is not fair in that particular area, particularly in some school districts. But to complement the trustees in those areas where they'd already done one-to-one -one and put in uh, uh, online learning op opportunities, uh, they've had an advantage over some of the other districts. Uh, I've actually got two questions for Dr. Hahn. Oh, uh, good. Uh, Dr. Hahn, specifically here in the Treasure Valley, it's been very publicized the last few weeks that there's, again, a bottleneck in testing where the reserving testing for those high-priority cases, those priority groups that you guys laid out about a month ago. With that in mind, what is the role of testing right now in the GEM state? Some people say at this point it's, it's too far gone and it's hard to track all of this with what's available. Yeah, so um, as we talked about, we know we need to do more with testing, and in some ways, because of the sudden surge in ill persons seeking testing, we've had to slide back in some other areas. Uh, for example, there are other states in this country, I think Alaska and Hawaii, I'm not sure if there are others, they require everybody coming to that state to get tested. So there was testing being done for people who wanted to go to Alaska, whether it was for work or whether family or a fishing trip. Um, and I think some of that is, for example, uh, harder to find now because um, especially I know the hospitals are saying we, we need to focus on the sick people. Um, so I don't think that the testing is at the point where it's not, it's, it's not giving us a picture. I think it's telling us, um, if, you, if you look on our website, um, I showed you, of course, the overall numbers, but you can see by every county um, and you can see um, where cases are going up in other counties. And Blaine County, to me, is really the interesting one right now where it's not going up. And I think part of that might be herd immunity, and part of it might be that they're taking this pretty seriously from their having such a, a rough go the first wave. 
But I think the data is telling us a lot. There is a lot of testing going on. Um, but as we mentioned, the testing task force today is going to be looking at do we need to revise those criteria in light of what's happening now? Do we need to recommend different groups get tested and how can we kind of make sure that happens? So I acknowledge that we need to reevaluate and um, change going forward because of the wave of cases. And this past week, a member of the governor's coronavirus working group said that he thought it was more dangerous now than it was back in March and April, touching on you know, the spread of the virus by asymptomatic people. Is that a fair analysis? Do you think it's more dangerous now or as dangerous now as it was at the beginning of this? Yes, I saw that interview with Dr. Pate. He's very vocal and, I, and great member of our working group. We really appreciate the, all the work he's doing to get the word out. Yeah, I understand where he's coming from. Um, we know that and he, he resides here in the Treasure Valley. I think if you live in other parts of the state right now, that's probably not the case. It looks better or no worse than it did some time ago. But in the Treasure Valley, we are seeing more cases now than we were then. We know now more about the virus. We know that it can be carried asymptomatically, and not only that, but spread. And in some ways, asymptomatic people might represent more of a threat because they're not staying home. They feel fine, right? So they're going to work. They're going out. Uh, so I absolutely agree with Dr. Pate that it's a very concerning time and what we hope happens, as the governor alluded to, that people at our high risk are taking this very seriously, uh, keeping away from others, wearing their masks, staying at home if possible, because it's, the virus is out there. We know that and it's, it's uh, something that people need to be very aware of. Governor, a question from James Dawson from Boise State Public Radio. Over the past seven days, more than 2,500 people have tested positive for the coronavirus in the state. It took Idaho 78 days to reach that number on May 29th. Has your reopening plan and its reliance on people taking personal responsibility for their actions failed? No. I, I mean, I wish it was better, uh, but, but I will tell you the no action alternative would have been far worse. Uh, uh, you know, we... You know, we didn't anticipate the run here, uh, but, but the no action alternative uh, would have been far worse. And a question from Don Day with Boise Dev. With many indicators moving in a negative direction, particularly in the Treasure Valley, but also in other locations, is there any threshold where you would consider taking statewide action like you did in the spring? Never say never, never say always. Another question from our Melissa Davlin. Uh, as we've acknowledged, you've turned over the reopening control to local health districts and to officials. Um, but right now we're seeing highest rates of infection in, for example, the Magic Valley, Canyon County, Washington County. Um, a lot of those high rates of infections are in communities where the health districts haven't taken any additional steps beyond the state reopening plan. Is there, I know you kind of just answered it with Don's question, but is there a circumstance or a specific trigger that would make you or the Department of Health and Welfare step in? Never say never, never say always. That's my answer to all the rest of the questions, the end of the press conference. No, I'm kidding. Governor, another question from Scott, CBS2, Scott Logan. He's asking- I thought he'd done his limit. I, uh, I did too. But, but no. This is a good question. Um, oh, good, finally. <laughs> <laughs> so businesses are being hit really hard, individuals are. Do you feel Idaho and other states need more stimulus money from Congress? Uh, I know that my fellow governors, uh, you know, we're gonna announce Tomorrow, I think, Marissa, we're going to announce tomorrow the uh, tomorrow or Monday the final year in. Uh, most of my fellow governors have way more significant problems than we do here in Idaho. 
You know, everyone in this room and everyone in Idaho is a federal taxpayer. At some point in time, uh, you know, we won't turn it down, uh, but, you know, because of what we've done, because of the actions that have taken place by Idahoans even way before me, uh, we're in a pretty good shape. We've got some challenges, but, you know, we're talking about asking our state agencies to do a 5% reduction. Some states are talking about a 40% uh, reduction. Uh, you think about that from um, my friends in the education industry and about how, how are they ever going to uh, uh, manage that. Uh, if, if the federal government uh, puts some more money into the system, we will avail ourselves of, of our fair share of the money. But frankly, right now, I think uh, uh, Congress ought to look at the federal debt and what the impacts of that is, are. Uh, Governor. Um, when the state does leave stage four, you know, whenever that is, um, what will that look like statewide? Will there be, you know, any restrictions in place or just will it be uh, no restrictions? Well, if we leave stage four, the one thing that will stay is all the guidance uh, that, uh, that it exists uh, on, our, on our state website about basically what the best practices are. And that's a dynamic document. Uh, based on new science uh, that we get out there. Uh, so uh, it will not be life as it was in January uh, for some time until we either A, have an incredible treatment or probably until we get a vaccine. So a lot of those will, a lot of that uh, recommendations, best practices, advice from the health districts will, will go on uh, until uh, said time that we've got uh, better control over the virus. As you mentioned, you know, parents want kids to go back to school, teachers want to go back to school, students want to go back to school, everyone wants to go back to normal. How do you convince, you know, worried parents and teachers and students that it's safe to do so? Well, we obviously what I harped on uh, a couple times is we individually and collectively if we do the right thing, uh, that those numbers will come down and that, uh, that risk will be uh, uh, substantially less. Uh, there's, there's risk in everything we do in life. Every, at this time, with the coronavirus, that risk level is higher for almost everything. I, particularly these kids uh, that have got challenging circumstances, it's so important for us uh, to do everything we can so that, as I told the state board this morning in my call with them, we don't have a big asterisk on the year 20 and 21 and say, these kids were lost in the coronavirus gap. Uh, that's, that is not acceptable to me, and I don't think it's acceptable to the people of Idaho. We're gonna do all we can individually and collectively as the education establishment from the classroom teacher uh, to myself and, and uh, Superintendent Ibarra and Chairman Critchfield uh, to make sure they have the best opportunity to return to the classroom. Governor. This might be a question for Dr. Hahn, but in terms, I'm sure it is. in terms of community spread right now, where would Ada County schools fall in the three categories for school operations? I think, uh, Chris, did you get that? The question is community spread in the three. 
And, and you're talking about the three levels that are designated in that document. I'll let Yeah, thank you. So the, the levels outlined in the document, as you know, are just being made public. That determination will be made by the local public health district, and they'll work with the school so they can take action. You know, we know that we have a lot of disease in the community right now, and it uh, wouldn't surprise me if we're either in the moderate or substantial, certainly not in minimal or none, uh, but that really will be the local public health district that'll make that call based on the data they have on hand. Gotcha. And then I have one question. Mm -hmm. to high flow oxygen instead of ventilators. So why are we still using ventilators as that measurement? Sure, yes. Uh, as I alluded to, those metrics, we've just been talking about tinkering with them, and that's exactly one of the things we'd like to change. Ventilators are still important. We, uh, there are patients in Idaho right now with COVID on ventilators. It's not like they're not relevant but they're not as important as they used to be. So we'd like to focus more on just how many people are in the hospital, how many people are in intensive care, whether or not they're on a ventilator. Um, so that's exactly why we're talking about changing. Dr. Hunt, stay up there. Okay. Yeah, Dr. Hunt, I wanted to ask specifically, you know, when the state reports a new death, you know, yesterday we saw four of them, uh, three in Canyon County, one in Washington County. What is the delay in actually reporting the, those deaths? Sure, so um, it can vary. Um, the, uh, when someone uh, dies, um, if they're at home or if they're in a facility, it may be a coroner or a physician or you know, provider that does that death certificate. They have a certain amount of time to file that death certificate. And then um, the uh, public health district investigates and makes sure that this is a, indeed a confirmed case of COVID. We don't wanna report statistics before we're sure that they're correct. So there's a little bit of lag there sometimes just to making sure that the report has been received and that we um, can confirm it. Uh, we, we wanna make sure that we're not doing two different things where an epidemiologist says, oh, I, didn't, I don't think that person died of that. And so we reconcile. Uh, working with the local health department and with the uh, vital statistics department to make sure that we're all on the same page. And then uh, my next question is for the governor, actually. Perfect. Governor, I want to ask you, do you think now, looking back this past month, that it was a mistake for Idaho to move on to stage four? Uh, you know, at the time, we barely met the criteria, and since then we've seen the spike in cases, more hospitalizations. Do you, looking back now, are you able to reflect and say, maybe we should have held off for another two weeks? Why or why not? I, I, hate, to, I hate to look backwards uh, unless I think I'm gonna learn something from it. Uh, and, and when I look back, you know, when we originally went into it, our numbers were great. Uh, it, it, two weeks ago when we were here, uh, I, I think we said we just barely squeaked over the finish line. Two weeks before that, we were in good shape. So it's really, uh, I think when we did that, it was the right thing to do. In hindsight, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, uh, Marissa's going to get nervous, uh, we should have given better direction uh, uh, to some of the facilities that we know now were our higher spread areas. If I was going to do something different, some of the other states did. Um, you know, basically uh, what we do about, and, the, and but the health districts are trying to address that. And so. From that standpoint, the system worked. Uh, we did it. You know, there's other areas where we've gone into uh, into stage four. Their numbers are fine. Uh, and I've always said I don't want to. As long as I've got 
that red line where I want it, uh, we, we should progress. Uh, that, was, that was our gold standard from the get-go from our first meeting. And that, I'll take you clear back to Blaine County. We were, we were part of that orange hump in Blaine County uh, at that point in time. And that's been our gold standard. That's what continues to be the gold standard. I don't think anybody forecasts the kind of community spread we'd have, particularly in this local area when we went into that stage. And, you know, if, if I had a, if I had a perfect projector, I'd invest all the state endowment in some kind of futures. Governor Little, uh, final question from Jimmy Dawson of Boise State Public Radio. What have the economic and personal sacrifices of Idahoans over the past several months achieved when the spread is far greater than it's ever been now? Uh, I'll go back to my earlier statement. The no action alternative would have been far worse. Uh, when you set up a hypothetical like that, uh, I, I assume it's an either or, and the either was we made those sacrifices. Had we not made those sacrifices, where we'd be today would be uh, drastically worse. So always think about what the no action alternative, and in fact, there isn't a state in the union that took the no action alternative. Even some of them that have the worst, uh, worst numbers right now, Arizona, Texas, Florida, uh, and of course, they're, they're, even though the numbers are still terrible in Maryland, North Dakota, or uh, New York, uh, and those areas, you know, they look better because it's, it's better compared to where they were, uh, but nobody took the no action alternative. We took what we thought was a prudent action, given the science of what we knew at that time. Uh, Governor, I have two questions. Uh, first one is for you. Um, you talked about Texas a second ago. You know, um, obviously that's a state that has now required uh, masks statewide. Um, has there been any talks or any plans to uh, instigate anything like that statewide? No. Uh, and the second question I have is for Dr. Hahn. Um, I guess, uh, could you explain a little bit more? Uh, oh, for Dr. Hahn, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Those darn masks, I can't understand. Sorry. Um, could you explain the downward trend in healthcare workers a little bit? I know in the you know past two weeks, I think there was about 59 new cases among healthcare workers, and the current two-week period we're in, there's upwards of 100. So I guess, could you explain the downward trend a little bit? Yeah, no, I don't have more information on that right now. I'm happy to, we're happy to um, have Scott pull those for you and, and give you more information. He just, he pulled these numbers yesterday, so we'd have the latest for you, so I know that the total numbers that we have are less than they were, I'm hopeful, uh, that we're starting to see because of because a lot of these are local. I do know that. We're hopeful that some of the actions that the district health department took have are starting to be felt in that community. Uh, a group that should be highly educated about how to protect themselves, and I'm hoping that they're taking that seriously and that we're starting to see a decrease. But I don't have any more details on that for for you right now. But we're happy to get that for you. 